is paying attention to Kobe Bryant. They start with Shaq. He gives it to Walton. Here comes Kobe. Less than five from way outside. Got it! Oh, man! With 2.1. Kobe Bryant has that it is, Al. He has it. He has the ability to make big shots. Azubuki kept it alive, but Kobe with the rebound. Warriors cannot buy a triple. Kobe wheeling. What a play to Turion. And the foul. Patty A watching Kobe. How you doing? What's going on? Everything all right? Everything's yep. good, man. Enjoying retirement? Is it fun? I'm enjoying retirement. I mean, I know you're doing a lot of other things, but... Yeah. But it's fun. Gotcha. I'll get a chance to watch the game from Yeah, start. you're coaching. Yeah, I am coaching. So How many games in a row would the Lakers have to lose for you to unretire, for you to come back to the team? <laughs> If we got to 20, you would think about it, right? Hey, they go 0-5, I'll tell you. You will think about it, huh? <laughs> yes. Here we got a good change of direction by Brian. Slam There will be no charge because the man's in that new painted imaginary circle. I think that's what the fans came to see. And you talk about elevation. Chick, he went up to the rafters before he decided to put somebody on a poster. I just don't have a lot to say. I, uh, the news is just devastating to everybody uh, who knew him, known him a long time. Everywhere you go, and uh, you see his face, his number. You know, he, he just he mean, he means a lot. To Gigi's me, face, Gigi's um, number. You know, he's everywhere at every intersection. Kobe gave my respect was the guys were complaining. There are hundreds of murals painted by artists who were inspired. I said, Kobe, there's no iron team. And Kobe said, I know, but there's an M.E. in that motherfucker. <laughs> so I went back. Hey, guys, it's Prim's Ripapat. I'm sure many of you feel the same. I'll always remember where I was when I heard the news about that horrific helicopter crash on Sunday, January 26th. Kobe Bryant, his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna, and the other seven victims were gone way too soon. The next chapter, as you guys know, is about life transitions. You've heard me talk about how retirement is the hardest transition an athlete will ever face. But within the grand scheme of life, death and the loss of a loved one, that is no question one of the hardest, if not the hardest life transition any of us will ever face. But even though it's been over a month since that tragic accident, as we've seen from All-Star Weekend to the public memorial service to the steady stream of support from players, coaches, and fans, there is no timeline with regards to grieving. Coping with loss 
especially if it involves someone we loved and or revered, can be a really long and difficult process. And it's different for everyone. So in today's episode, we're going to go a little bit longer because I thought it was important that I put together this collection of voices to add some depth to this conversation. I'll speak with senior NBA writer for The Undefeated, Mark Spears, who's known and covered Kobe since he was a rookie with the Lakers. I honestly didn't realize how close Mark was with Kobe until he started sharing some deeply personal stories. After that, we'll hear from longtime Lakers sports psychologist, Dr. William Parham, who's known Kobe for many years and was there for the Lakers 2010 NBA championship. He'll talk about what coaches and players and really all of us, what we can all be doing to take care of ourselves in the wake of tragedy and trauma. Lastly, I'll bring in ESPN NBA writer and TV personality, Amin Hassan to answer some tough questions about how one's legacy should be remembered, especially if it involves a complicated past. But before we bring in today's guests, I wanted to play a few minutes from an interview I did with Kobe just six months ago. It was my first time ever meeting him, and he was making the rounds at last year's U.S. Open to promote his new children's book, Legacy and the Queen, which just so happens to feature a young tennis girl. So here we are, my co-host, Jamie Sire, and I, speaking with the five-time NBA champion and 18-time All-Star, Kobe Bryant. This is unbelievable. Uh, I don't think this man needs an introduction, but I will, I will do it anyway. Kobe Bryant sitting down with us now, a five-time NBA champ. But what was it, eight, 18 times? How many times have you been out here to the U.S. Open? This is my first time. This is your really? very first, this is my first time? time. So yesterday is my first day. I don't know why I thought you had been here out here. Wow. I wish. I, I, I was, you know, busy doing a bunch of other stuff. <laughs> Playing basketball or yeah. something. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, it kind of took up a little time. Yeah, and so now I get the opportunity to do this, and hopefully next year I can bring my kids. They'll be a little older. And uh, we'll have a good time as a family. Well, I'm so interested in terms of the intersection between what you are doing with tennis, because you're coming out with a book, Legacy and the Queen. Yeah. Which we have on set, by the way. Which we have. I love Thank you. I will be the the How long? I want to read this, but how long is this? It doesn't look very. It's not not long at all. Okay. I'm all about simple reading these days. The first page (laughs) and the last page, you you have to do yourself a favor and, like, open it underneath the sunlight. Under the sunlight. Oh. Under the sun. Here, Open it wait, under here. the I'm sun, a... and then you watch magic happen. You got to be right oh, under the sun. Oh, there's a. Um... Oh, there's like a tree or something. <laughs> this is very cool. Um, so, wait, tell yeah. me a little bit more about this book, and I know this is the first of, of five, right? Yeah. And um, I guess give us the cliff notes. I mean, without giving it away, but yeah. What is what? What's the focus of the book? Well, the, the 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 book, the idea started originally with wanting to tell a story that dealt with the journey of inner emotion and the challenge that we face. It's like the first book we released as a company is called The Wizard Art Series, and that was a story of empathy and compassion. So I made it about a basketball team. You know, you have teammates that you need to understand and appreciate and so forth. This one, I wanted the struggle to be more inner. Mm. And to me, tennis is the best story for that to live because it, because it is just you out there facing these external challenges that then challenge you internally. And so that, that's what the book is about. It's about legacy, you know, fighting for what she loves, and trying to hold on to what she loves dearly, not understanding how big of a challenge she's facing and 
we'll have to see if she can overcome it or not. I mean, this is a tremendous project. I mean, for somebody who is very passionate about psychology and mental health, I know, Jamie, you hear me talk about all the time, and it's something that is really coming to the forefront, especially in the world of sports. We're hearing a lot more athletes yes. come out and be more forthright about the issues that they are going going through. But how much did that inspire you to start this book series? A lot. A lot. And I think the important thing uh, for me in creating these books is, you know, I got a lot of people that said, you can't write these books. Mm. Kids won't understand them. The messages that you're trying to convey to these children, they're not ready to hear that. Just let them hear something fun and, oh, look, it's magic and all sort of stuff. And I disagree with that. I think it's important to, to distill these very complex messages, especially in dealing with emotion and how to deal with anxiety, how to deal with pressure, how to deal with success and failure. Distill those down at a very early age so now kids can start being self-aware at 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. And it better prepares them for life, I think. So. And four daughters now, right? Four daughters. Congratulations on, the, on the latest edition. Thank you. How much of, a, of an inspiration were they for, for, for writing this? Well, you know, Every book that we create has diverse characters. You know, it's rare for us to find a book with characters that look like my girls, you know? And so every book that I create comes from that place. I want, I want, I want them to have heroes in film and literature that remind them of themselves. And so it all comes from there. Uh, I, you know, I just had my first kid 11 months Congrats. ago. Congrats. By the way, the MVP of your family, no offense to you, but is your wife. Oh, 100%. Four kids. <laughs> After 100%. having one kid and just the physical changes and the yeah. toll, I won't go into it, but it's just, it's crazy. But it's been fun to watch you progress through your own personal journey. Um, the Kobe pre-kid, yeah. do you think you would have ever done any of this? No. If you would have told me then that this is what I would be doing, I'd be like, no, I'm playing basketball like for the rest of my life. You know, mm -hmm. it was a singular focus. When you have kids, the world opens up. And now it's about Natalia. It's about Gianna. right? It's about Bibi. It's about Coco and like loving them and making sure you put them in the best possible situation as well as my wife. Like we've grown together in that and making sure we're doing everything possible that, you know, for them to live their best lives. So. Yeah, we're taking a look at some of the footage of the girl in the basket yesterday, yeah. hanging out with the NetGen kids. The greatest of all time, a writer, an Oscar winner, and the Black Mamba. But to me, he was Cobe Cobe, my boo-boo, my baby, my papi chulo. I was his VB, his principessa. Now, our conversation was only 10, maybe 15 minutes, but in just that brief interaction, I was able to get a glimpse of where Kobe was in his life and who he had become. A former pro athlete who created Granity Studios, a production company aimed at helping athletes maximize their potential. A creator who won an Academy Award for his short film, Dear Basketball a storyteller who was launching his own children's book series. And most importantly, a husband and a father of four daughters whom he deeply loved and was committed to changing and improving the landscape around them. Considering the scope of my show, which is talking to athletes about life after sport, I find it ironic that the one and only time I got to meet Kobe happened to be after his basketball career. What's crazy is, that next day, he actually followed me on Twitter. 
And I thought to myself, there's no way he's got to have people running his social media. And I checked it out and he only follows some 500 people. So I thought it's probably him. And I'm not sharing that information to brag. It's more, if there was an athlete that I would have wanted to sit down with and talk about their next chapter after sport, it was him. We obviously never connected, but the one thing I really noticed about Kobe that day was how he had seemingly softened. Kobe, who was always known for his tenacious, relentless, and at times unforgiving Mamba mentality, had warmed. And all that raging energy that he had once poured into basketball had now been dispersed into all these different avenues, including his family. But that was just my take from a very brief encounter. I didn't know him like Mark Spears did. And Mark, who's been a sports journalist for a number of decades now, was able to shed some light on who Kobe was beyond the basketball court and talked about how his working relationship with Kobe eventually evolved and grew into this wonderful friendship. Hey, Mark, thanks for joining the show. How long did you know him and, and how close were you guys? Well, it's funny you say that because I, I always kind of respected his space and maybe, maybe that's one way we kind of were cool. I wasn't on top of him all the time. You know, even in retirement, I wanted him to respect his his transition retirement-wise, you know, uh, starting his company, being around his family. So I I would like just send him emails, man. And that's how we communicated. I, I've kind of, I guess, one of those these old school reporters where I, I think people change their phone numbers all the time. So I used to always ask for players' emails because people don't change their email. <laughs> I first met him when he was a rookie. He, my His rookie year with the Lakers was the beginning of pretty much my career. When the Lakers were in the playoffs during his rookie year, I got to cover a couple of the home games uh, in Inglewood at the forum. So and then I, I wasn't covering the NBA. These guys had no clue who I was. I just remember um, introducing myself to Kobe, introducing myself to Shaq. But like, I remember seeing Kobe in a, um, in a, in a restaurant in LA once with one of his friends. And I always kind of felt like bad for him. Then he was like eight, 19 years old in a big city like Los Angeles and not old enough to do anything. And while, Many would think, oh, he's, you know, Kobe Bryant. He could just walk in any club or anything like that. Him being Kobe Bryant made it harder to get in. Those early years probably personally were, was really tough because guys were 21 and going out. Guys like, you know, Byron Scott and I think Rick Fox were going home to their families, you know, and where does he go? What does he do? You know, so then I had basically gone away for a couple of years, uh, Went and worked in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And in 99, I started covering NBA again, Denver Nuggets for the Denver Post. So, you know, obviously what happened in, in Vail um, was a big deal to our paper. I had a tough assignment to, like, interview him before his first time back in Denver. Mm. He was very smart. He knew why I was there. Randomly at a game, you know, when I went to um, talk to him after the game and try to ask him some questions, he just bolted and close the door in my face. I, so I didn't like him at first. Because of the circumstances, I didn't really take it personal. 
kind of felt like he it wasn't about me, you know. So the next time we really, really talked, in 2005, after Hurricane Katrina, my f- family, my parents, um, relocated to Dallas. They live in Harvey, they live in New Orleans. Several family members who lost their homes relocated temporarily to Dallas or Houston or, or Atlanta. It was very devastating to my family. And so there was this charity basketball game in Houston and that I went to where a majority of the NBA stars were there. Kobe was there, Allen Iverson, um, a young LeBron, a young Carmelo, a lot of stars came. And I remember touring a convention center and there were just hundreds and hundreds of beds with black people laying, predominantly black people who were had to leave New Orleans on these cots. I was walking around with Chauncey Billups, and I remember Robert Pack uh, just breaking down, crying. You know, it was it was tough to go to the game that day, and I'm you know in work mode and writing my story about the whole day. And I remember Kenyon Martin giving away shoes. God, all this mm-hmm. stuff is coming back to me. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, and Kobe pulled me to the side. And he goes, "How's your family?" I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> like, how's your family doing? I, I heard your, you know, family was displaced. And so I started telling him about what was going on with my parents, how they were in Dallas and what was going on with my other family members. And, and I was, I always remember, was the general manager, Tommy Shepard, who I've known forever, tell me once, if, if you're waiting for an NBA player to give you a hug, you're wasting your time, you know? <laughs> There's That's like awesome. so many meanings to that, right? But yeah, um, but he like gave me that hug, man. Like Kobe, mm. like was genuinely interested in how my family was affected, what was going on, when are they going back home? Like, I was like, this dude, is this fake or real? Like, why is he? He was genuinely interested in what was going on, and then from that point on, you know we became great. We became cool. You know, um, he always took care of me after games. Um, I remember one big giant media day, which if you ever went to a Lakers media day, when it was Shaq and Kobe, it was always a zoo. It was a spectacle in itself. Uh, like mm-hmm. no other, he would give me time over to the side somewhere and just super accommodating. I, I still regret this. He, we were going to, he went out after a Warriors game in San Francisco one night and told me to meet up, him up. And I planned to do it and got sidetracked. And this was several years before he, he retired and I, I wasn't able to meet up with him. And I don't know why I always felt bad about not catching up with him that time. But we, we hung out in like Salt Lake once and it was hilarious. <laughs> and, but, you know, most of our interactions were, like after games and probably my favorite one was um, his last, after his last game in Oakland, he didn't have a great game. He only had eight points. It was towards the end. And uh, so he he did his media stuff and, you know, I'm trying to get a little more. He's in the uh, training room and uh, Allison Bogley, who does an amazing job with the Lakers, fantastic job. And, been really, really tough for her, I'm sure, through all this. Um, she's like, uh, Kobe wants you to go in the training room. 
So, which is like no man's land for reporters. We don't get yeah. that. <laughs> like, no one I'm ever like, goes in there. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. I'm like, so I go in there and Spike Lee's people are filming. This was, mm-hmm. you know, the, um, the documentary they did on him. So there's like yeah. cameras in there, which was really strange because I'm having a, just a, like, I, I interviewed him at first and then we ended up having like this 10 minute conversation. And, um, I, I just never forget like typical him. How's the job going? How are things going? And at that time, and, uh, I kind of felt like I needed to change. Like this was, you know, I previously worked at Yahoo and it had been an amazing opportunity, but it, I felt like I needed to do something different. And, you know, like he wanted to know why, <laughs> like, he, like, like, he, why, I don't know why he cares what he cares. Like he's interested in this stuff. You know what I mean? And yeah. He, he, I don't, and when I don't he remember. Cares, the, he cares real hard. Yeah. Like, yeah. To the core obsessiveness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I kind of like explained to him the whole deal. And I was a little nervous that that conversation was going to go on a Spike Lee joint, you know, and it, uh-huh. it didn't. I like asked them if they, they like, I, I I don't care if you run the interview part, but could you please? Like, I still haven't seen the whole thing. I need to watch that to see if any of that conversation's in there. But so when I got the job at Undefeated, you know, as you you mentioned, I I sent him an email. And I was like, thank you for your words, man. I I really appreciate, you know, what you said to me at that time. It meant a lot. And he goes, hey, man, you know, I'm happy for you. Keep writing from the heart. And I'm here here for you if you need me. There's been so many conversations. I've li- I've listened to so many, you know, uh, podcasts and people reflecting about his career and reading up articles. You know, anytime something like this, tr- any sort of tragedy happens, we kind of want to remember and relive some of those moments. So there's a lot of things, you know, a lot of people watching his documentary and diving into um, hit the short film that he won an award for. And You know what, Noah Graham, nobody talks about his books. Well, and that's why with this show, if there was anyone that I wanted to interview, Kobe was on the top of my list. If you talk about somebody who's been able to transfer all that he learned in sport into so many other arenas in his life, it was Kobe. And he did it way before he retired. And so when I got a chance to meet him at the U.S. Open, that's what he was there for. He was talking about uh, his new book, Legacy and the Queen, which was inspired by Naomi Osaka. And it was about a tennis, a young tennis girl who used sport to find her inner power. And so he was continuing, as you know, to write these, these children's books. And of course, like his, his basketball career is, you know, it's, it's iconic. And we haven't talked about it. That, that says a lot about it, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I haven't talked to him about, barely talked about that in any of my interviews. I, I mean, I got some memories of him on the floor too now. And I've heard all of these stories about, you know, Michael Wilbon coming on and sharing his story about how he was just so fascinated about storytelling and he would reach out to him, ask, pound him with questions and, you yeah. know, Stephen A saying like, you know, going up to Stephen A and being like, how the hell did I write a book before you? He's like, you need to get on it, you know, and that those just type of stories that I really enjoy. I'm curious about what kind of um, perspective you could provide about, you know, putting Kobe, the basketball player aside, but the development development that you saw from him as a person at 17, 18 years old to today, you know, he was 41 when he passed. I mean, that that was a tremendous 
transformation. He was still the same. He was still prodigious and genius. But at least from from an outside perspective, it seemed like he had really grown, matured, and in some ways warmed up, if that makes sense. One one thing I was always impressed by was I think part of the reason why he was able to put himself in position to do the projects that he had, like he took advantage of, I, I call like the people in the stands. Like if you go to a game in Los Angeles, there's so many movers and shakers that sit around that floor. And over the course of 20 years, he got the, basically LA was his oyster. You know what I mean? Like, Whoever he wanted to meet with, like you'd hear like he cold call like Oprah or he would talk to somebody who made shoes like from (laughs) scratch. You know what I mean? Like he would talk to people who were experts in any field. It didn't have to be athletics. It didn't have to be entertainment. Anyone great in any walk of life had something to offer. So another thing he would do was like after games, it was inevitably someone he had to meet with all the time. All the time, and that's how it is for superstars. And it wasn't for him; it was never, "Hey, how you doing? Let's take this picture. Nice to meet you." You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he would always find out who they were, get their bio, what their story was. Like as if, in the same way, he would get a scouting report on a on a shooting guard he had to guard. And so he would walk out, he would come out and the people be waiting, be so nervous, so like intimidated and scared. And they could be like CEOs or something. He would walk out. Hey, Josh, man, how are you doing? Yeah, this project that you, you're working on or, or you just did. Yeah, it's fabulous. Um, how, tell me about that. And <laughs> Are your kids here? And did you bring your kids? Or, and they'd, they'd be like stunned that he would know so much about them. And then suddenly you would see their just guard goes down and he'd make him feel like he was just talking to, you know, somebody that he met at a bar or something. You know what I mean? Like they'd be relaxed. And then ultimately if that person was powerful, he would keep the connection. I don't know any other player that ever did that. If if somebody is going to meet Kobe They've got to be somebody. If, if they, you get access to be him after the game, you're somebody. And he, he realized, that, okay, I'm going to meet this person, but if this person can make me a better person or if this person could open up this door for me that has otherwise been closed, I'm going to make that connection. I'm going to bring up a complicated topic and question now, but knowing your relationship with him and you were there in Denver immediately after that whole thing went down. Uh, but I, I want to leave it. I want to pose an open-ended question to you first before I kind of give my two cents. But now it's been about three weeks at the time of our recording. It's been about three weeks since, since his death and since his passing. And so we've seen the outpouring of support from and love from so many people. Um, and it's a touchy subject, but there's also been from a smaller population voices from the perspective of the the girl, um, the victim, the incident that happened in 2003 in Denver. And so there's this whole conversation about whether or not it needs to be brought up or should be brought up or if there's a place for it to be brought up after his tragic passing. 
Um, how do you how do you feel about that with regards to when you're remembering somebody or an icon, mm. especially with somebody like him? Do you think there's a place for it as in, you know, it's, it was just a part of his journey and development? Or do you think that, you know, after his passing, that that just needs to be put aside? Ooh. <laughs> That's a tough question for me to answer. I'll probably just say I know too much. Every media member, I guess they have their own ways of doing things. I, I didn't write about it. Here, I'll go ahead. I'll, I'll offer my thoughts on it. You know, there's been a lot of people that have said, there's no room for it. You shouldn't, you shouldn't bring that up. What's happened in the, it's in the past. You know, it, he passed away. That's not honoring his legacy, but coming from myself who has made a lot of mistakes and a lot of failures, like those moments are moments that make or break us. And I, um, I will say that I don't always think it, it has to be pretty extreme for me to say somebody doesn't deserve a second chance, but I would say most people de- deserve a second chance. My evaluation of them as a person and as of their character is in the years following any sort of event, any sort of wrongdoing, if you will. And, I, and I'm just always curious, like, okay, you you did this thing. You said you're going to get better. You said you understand. Now let's see it. Well, let's let's see what you got. You're going to walk the walk. You got to talk the talk, right? And in my opinion, and he's been pretty outspoken about it. Um, he had mentioned in his documentary, in that documentary, he had mentioned how, how much he really learned from that. Um, he had mentioned um, about the the anger and rage that he played with some of it stemming from his childhood. And that was kind of a part of it um, and contributing to that event. And it made him realize the importance of family. And he also mentioned that um, his wife, Vanessa, had a a miscarriage about a year and a half to two years afterwards. And he blames himself because she was so stressed from that particular year and that event. And um, it seems like from afar... And through his words that it inspired him, it really woke him up and inspired him to become a better person. Those things are a part of our journeys, right? Because no, no one's legacy. Like when I die, I'm certainly not going to, I'm not an angel. There's I've got plenty of skeletons in the closet. You know, I've done a lot of bad things, but those things are a part of my journey and make me who I am. And they've also made me a better person, you know? Yeah. What you said. I think you said. I think you said it poetically and brilliantly. And we, we, let's go with what you said. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> well, you know, I you started off your undefeated article um, with uh, you know people saying like, "What's Kobe like?" And you said, "Simply the best." Where does that? Where does that come from? Why did you, why do you say that? To me, pound for pound, he encompassed everything. He, he was, uh, in terms of, I always like people that were uh, 100, as they say, you know, like you, you may not like it, but you know where they're coming from. The fact that he was planning for a post-career already, you know, years before he ended, like I talked to Julius Randall about it. And so they used to like sit on a plane together and, 
you know, Kobe used to ask him about his finances and what what was he doing and how was he preparing for, you know, post career and stuff like that. You know, he he cared about playing every game and he crushed him when he couldn't play. There was no load management with him. He understood he understood that somebody going to a game that might be the only chance they ever have to see him play. So even if it was a preseason, maybe he might take a preseason game away at home, but he, he didn't want to miss games. And I didn't mind him not wanting to work with people that didn't like, he didn't know, he knew people weren't as good as him, but, but how hard were you working? You know, at least if you, you worked hard, he respected it, you know, and it, it was just like, he was standing over here and the 479 other players in the league were in a different role. Weeks following the events, I'm sure you've had some time to really reflect and go through the emails. Not, and- not like I've wanted to. No? No, because it's, you know, it's been a lot going on, yeah. you know, in terms of that week after, you know, it was the, you know, the, the media thirst and the public thirst for stories and information and then all-star came and you know, and it's, it's just, so I, I can't say that I've hmm. really been able to just go and, and take some time and reflect and, you know, the way I wanted to been around different media members who've been crushed, including myself, you know, like Bill Plasky, LA Times, seeing him. And when I saw him, uh, before that, that Blazers game, I mean, he just gave me a hug and, you know, cried. And, you know, I saw Howard Beck the other day and he covered him and Howard, you could tell he's still having a hard time. And I think it's tough right now for, he, he was one of the unique guys that was so close to so many people. You get up at 540, I, I was going to do sports center at 715 in the morning I'm walking through the LA library at 6:45, and you see 500 people there mourning and you know putting candles and flowers, you know, at the memorial they have for them, and that that kind of like, you know, ripped me apart. Uh, I think Monday will probably be that day, you know. In essence, it's still a work day, you know. It's not. I'm not just going there and sitting down and taking it all in. No, I'm expected to write a story after. So I, I would like to say to all the media members that are close to him that after Monday, yeah, I hope each single one of us in our own way can go away for a minute. You know, I know I haven't had an opportunity to myself. I'm grateful to be here to honor Gigi and celebrate the gift that Kobe gave us all. What he accomplished as a basketball player, as a businessman, and a storyteller, and as a father. In the game of basketball, in life, as a parent, Kobe left nothing in the tank. He left it all on the floor.
Listening to Mark reminisce about his relationship with Kobe made me realize how some people are still really going through it. And by going through it, I mean hurting and even just now touching the surface of this grieving process. I reached out to sports psychologist Dr. William Parham, who's worked with the Lakers since 2002, to talk about the psychological processes associated with grief and losing an icon or a loved one and what people need to be doing to really take care of themselves in the wake of something like this. I I guess in a nutshell, I have been responding to the organization along with a small team of uh, mental health colleagues. Uh, We've been responding to that organization and others really in two ways. One is to help them process the shock of what has happened. We do know that a shock to a current stressor often awakens and disrupts um, stuff we've been holding down for many, many years. And so there's sort of a reawakening of old stuff. And when you mix it with the current uh, situation, it really can begin to feel emotionally heavy. And so we work with individuals and organizations, one that sort of tease out uh, the differences. You know, what are you reacting to now? What might be conflating this emotional reaction that you're having? But also offering them some suggestions for how to stay focused and, and integrate the loss and really understand it and appreciate it, but not to lose focus in terms of their journey and the directions and intentions that they have for their lives. I felt so deeply saddened and over somebody that I really didn't have a personal relationship with. Uh, So can you explain why so many of us in the sports world and beyond felt so deeply saddened over somebody that personally we really didn't know? Pram, I I certainly hear that you didn't know him, but for a few minutes, essentially, in a short period of time, contrasting to other uh, ballers who may have played with him and been in the heat of battle with him. But while you don't know him in a physical way uh, over the long period of time, one of the impressions I have with uh, Kobe is that he touched the lives of everybody uh, in a way that intersected with where they were at in their life. Mm. You know, when you look at all of his accomplishments, uh, some of which were that he was a five-time NBA champion, 18-time NBA All-Star, you know, two-time Olympic gold medalist. He was a philanthropist. And even post-career, he was an Oscar award winner first time out. But he also balanced that with being a husband, father, friend, certainly a fan favorite, but also he was a global citizen. He really did touch the lives of a lot of people. And When I look back on what he has done, everybody who's entered his circle of influence see that Kobe has really embraced every challenge, believing that abundant opportunities for personal growth and maturation were hidden somewhere there. And even in his death, when he and Gianna were welcomed into the creator's arms, he really invites us still to appreciate every minute, experience, situation, circumstance and person with whom we interact. He invites us to discover the talents and gifts that all of us have been given innately. And he invites us to really translate those gifts and talents 
into serving those who are less fortunate and, and essentially teaching others how to turn life's stumbling blocks into stepping stones ripe with possibilities. In short, I think he really modeled, as he called it, the mama mentality, which was identifying a North Star goal, being very passionate in pursuit of that goal, understanding the sacrifices that would need to be made along the way, but realizing the big picture and the rewards that come with that singular pursuit. He modeled that on a day-to-day basis, game in and game out, irrespective of the adversity that came. And I think that tapped into each of us questions. Are we doing the same thing with our lives? Are we taking control and mastery over the direction we say we want to go in? So so his presence, both on and off the court, was actually the same journey all of us are on, almost like the Pied Piper, if you will, (laughs) bringing us along with an ongoing invocation, really asking the question, Are you being better today than you were yesterday, yet not as good as you will be tomorrow? I worry sometimes. I I don't think that athletes, especially the younger ones, are equipped to handle it. I mean, I I don't think I'm equipped to handle it at 39 years old. Death is something that I haven't really had too much experience with. But I also want to make sure that leagues and teams and coaches are equipped to handle this type of situation and take care of their, not only themselves, but also their players as well? Uh, That's that's an actually intriguing question, uh, Prem. Um, And and I guess I start looking at the assumption that you asserted up front, where you sort of isolate this particular situation as one that you or others may not be able to adjust to and while on the surface and in your own lived experiences, that is exactly how you feel and your perception of how others might feel. In my life experiences, both personally and professionally, um, with a lot of the patients I've seen in practice, a lot of the students I've taught over the years, a lot of the players I've seen go through ups and downs, I'm often amazed and, and feel honored to be in the front row seat of just how much talent, energy, thought, commitment people really do have and they don't know that they have or are in possession of until an adversity strikes. That's always reminded me that we take a lot of things for granted. Mm. And while things are moving in the direction that we think they ought to be moving, we sort of don't really think about or actually have the privilege to not think about what if things don't go well and what if they don't go well very intensely. I'm a firm believer and it's been uh, proven certainly all of my career that people have a genius about them to respond to tragedy, to respond to uh, unexpected off the radar events of huge magnitude in ways that they don't even comprehend. But I also want to just add a number of players I've seen, but also a lot of patients I've seen over the years. Mm -hmm. They really have struggles that nobody is aware of. And in fact, I recently authored a paper, I think I shared with you on invisible tattoos, Mm -hmm. uh, images and recollections of the pain that people carry with them throughout their lives, never letting others know what their journey is really like. Yet they find a way to uh, set goals, 
distinguish themselves in many domains of their life, sometimes to the peril of really addressing some of that past trauma or crises, believing that if they could just sort of keep it packed up and they succeed uh, in all other ways, somehow that past baggage or invisible tattoo will dissolve. Well, like an actual tattoo that's been etched on one's body, you, you can't go to the bathroom and just wash it off with soap and water. The best therapist is the actual person themselves. They are their own therapist. And your job as a psychologist is, is to help reveal some of that. Of course, I'm completely paraphrasing here, and you said it much more eloquently than I did. Um, but you did say that, didn't you? It's relative to teaching my graduate students about the counseling process. One of the things they have to memorize is the following mantra. When I listen to my clients long enough, they will tell me what's wrong with them. When I listen to my clients just a little longer, they will tell me what I can do to make them feel better. I teach my students that the real therapist in the room is the client, not you. I teach my students that they aren't the wizard. I remind them of the story of the Wizard of Oz, where Dorothy got trapped in Oz and wanted to get back home to Kansas. And she was told that if you just follow the yellow brick road, go to the Emerald City and ask the wizard, he would tell you how to get home. And along her journey, she encountered a scarecrow, tin man, and cowardly lion symbolic of brains, heart, courage. They all lacked those particular things. And so the four of them made their way to the Emerald City. When they met the wizard, the wizard told Dorothy, click your heels three times and you will be able to go back to Kansas. But see, the real moral of that story, and what again I remind my students of, you don't have to go outside of yourself down some yellow brick road journey to Oz to find a brains, heart, courage that you already have inside. But the wizard was not telling her to go back to Kansas. He was telling her to go inside herself. So related, I remind my students that when a person walks in the door to see them for counsel, there's three things that you immediately know about that person without either of them opening up their mouth. You know their gender, you know their ethnicity, and however old you perceive them to be, they have been doing their life successfully without you. So somebody comes in who's 30 years old, for 30 years, they've made it without you. And it's clear that they're coming in now, perhaps because they're in some varying stages of brokenness. But at most, I teach my students that their ability is to facilitate a person reconnecting to the genius and talent that he or she has been innately blessed with. And they, once back on the road, journey as far as they are willing and able to travel. Are you doing that on purpose? Or can't you make up your mind? That's the trouble. I can't make up my mind. I haven't got a brain. Only strong. I, 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 I hope that tonight is not, you know, you guys know that, you know, if you do the work, you work hard enough, dreams come true. You know that, we all know that. But hopefully what you get from tonight is the understanding that um, those times when you get up early and you work hard, those times when you stay up late and you work hard, those times when you don't feel like working, you're too tired, you don't want to push yourself, but you do it anyway, um, that is actually the dream. That's the dream. It's not the destination, it's the journey. And if you guys, if you guys can understand that, 
then what you'll see happen is that you won't accomplish your dreams. Your dreams won't come true. Um, something greater will. And uh, if you guys can understand that, then I'm doing my job as a father. Thank you guys so much. I love you. Mamba out. loved what Dr. Parham said about us being teased with regards to Kobe's brilliance outside of basketball. Reflecting on everything Kobe's done beyond the court, it's been nothing but miraculous. But every so often, admittedly, I'll be reminded of that one thing, that one time that some people believe stained his legacy. And that's the 2003 sexual assault case. That memory will pop up or flash in my mind, and in all honesty, I wasn't really sure what to do with it. I didn't know if I was supposed to push it aside or include it into the conversation. Many of my colleagues, including Mark, as you heard, really don't even want to touch the topic, and understandably so, because it's complicated and extremely sensitive. And from our perspective as a member of the media and public figure, There's not a lot of good things that can come from it, considering the backlash we could face. I spent about an hour with my good friend, NBA writer, Amin Al-Hassan, searching for some answers. And we addressed it from a philosophical perspective, using our own journeys as an example. There's a self-reflectiveness about Kobe that slowly surfaced that I didn't know was there. So I think it, there was a podcast, you know, over the past month, I've, I've dived into articles and podcasts and just listening to everybody's stories and also listening to more interviews of, of and from Kobe. And he had mentioned that he was asked the question, you know, at what point did you realize that you either empathy was not your strong suit and that's something that you needed to work on. And he kind of shared a story in a moment with a teammate where he said his teammate came up to him and was like, Hey, Kobe, I just, I just need to know that you need me. And Kobe's like, what do you like? Duh. Yeah, of course I need you. And he's like, no, I I just need to know. And so he kind of admitted, he said, well, that was a moment where I realized this is bigger than basketball. There's, there's a relationship and emotional component to it. So hearing those stories like tells me there was a tremendous evolution in his personal development and growth. And this is where I bring up the complicated question and, and topic. And I know it puts a lot of people in a difficult position. And as members of the media, you know, we, you and I, and you especially because you're in the NBA world, like we... There, there's a sensitivity to to various topics, right? And there's also right. a complexity to it. And I'm I'm only asking this because I'm trying to figure out my answer as well. But I come from it from from a compassionate perspective, not from a journalistic perspective. But as you know, like psychology is a place where I want to be, and I want to help people, and I want to help people right. heal. But I guess my question is, you know, no one's legacy. We want it to be binary, where Somebody is good, somebody is bad. Somebody is a hero, somebody's the devil. But no one's legacy is like that. You know, and I guess in in the passing of of any icon, 
We like to relive the beautiful and the good moments. And we like to push aside those so-called failures and mistakes and bad side. Right. But I guess, shouldn't that be a part of their legacy as well? Especially if they, in some ways, redeem themselves? Yeah, I, I don't know if you saw the uh, the clip of Michael Eric Dyson, uh, or is it Eric Michael Dyson, the uh, esteemed pr- professor and intellectual. Mm-hmm. You know, he was responding to this at the time when the Gail King uh, interview with Lisa Leslie mm-hmm. came out, and everyone went crazy and like yeah, Snoop Dogg and people being very kind of. Um, you know, abusive, harsh language, right? Mm. Uh, directed towards Gail King, right? And so uh, Dyson goes on and he says, he basically breaks it down where, like, part of it is, like, you know, uh, you can disagree with Gail King and, and her timing or whatever and not and do it without being disrespectful. And if you want to honor Kobe, you would do it by doing it in a way that does not disrespect a woman, Right. But then he goes deeper in and he's like, now, if you think of that incident and like how Kobe has talked about, you know, admitting that while he did not believe it or he believed it was consensual, Mm -hmm. he later learned that the woman, I guess, felt like it was. So he kind of broke down the whole like rather than just dismissing her, she's just some floozy or whatever, trying to get rich or whatever. Yeah, he came out and apologized and said, yeah, exactly that. He thought it was consensual, but after hearing her testimony and listening to the attorney, he admitted that he realized that it wasn't consensual. Right. And and so there's the empathy there. There's ability Mm -hmm. to self-reflect and and, and to grow from, right? The the most important part is to grow from that experience Um, and to live your life in a way like basically altered the way he lived his life, how he approached things based on that. And so um, I don't I don't think we're doing a disservice to talk about Eagle Colorado when talking about Kobe Bryant, mm-hmm. the, the, like in, in terms of I think even from his standpoint, because if he's saying, well, this it made me the man I am today. Obviously, like you would hope you don't have to go through that kind of uh, pain inflicting experience uh, to, to learn and to become more enlightened, but, um, he did. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's that part of it. the other part of it is also, and, and this goes for a lot of different things. I always, I always remind fans, like, I, I don't, I'm not the PR department. Like if we're going to remember someone, let's remember them. They're, they're good parts and they're like, it's, it's a, it's history. Yeah. Right? So you're it's in the pub- camp of like, if we remember somebody, it's not just about forgetting all the bad things. It's forgetting their whole journey, which is. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and so, and now there's, there's something to be said about timing. Yeah. Like, right. Like guy just passed away. Like the, that was my thing about Gail King. It was like, this clearly wasn't a hot topic for you until he passed away. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't remember her asking this question of anyone else she interviewed prior to his passing. So she did it because now it's it's a thing. Uh, my thing was just, you could have waited on that. Or you could have asked the question, and then once you got rebuffed, keep it moving. Yeah. yeah. So, so, there, there's, so there, there is something to timing and, and all right. that. But 
at the, at the end of the day, when we describe the life and times of Kobe Bryant, that's got to be a part of it. Like, you can't just ignore it any more than you would ignore um, Malcolm X's uh, um, stint where he was a, a petty criminal in and out of jail, addicted to drugs. Like, that's all part of the story. And do I wish that Malcolm X could have lived a, a, a taste, a taste in, an, an unwholesome life his entire life and just been inspirational? Mm-hmm. Sure. Like, uh, it would have been nice if he didn't have to, like, rob people and do these things, right, when he was younger. But it made him at, in, into at, the person exa- that he eventually became. Exactly, right? It's, it's, you yes. don't get to pick and choose the cool parts of your life. Right. And then other stuff had nothing to do with it. I was always going to be this or whatever. I, I, I talk about that with my life. It, it took me really hating engineering to want to be, to do what I do now, to work in basketball. The show is, is about psychology and it's also about the intersection between sports and life. And sports is the metaphor for, it's, in my opinion, the greatest metaphor for life. And, you know, a lot of those failures and dips in our lives are the thing, our, our most defining moments. You know, it's not the successes that define us, it's our failures. So when, like, if I look back in my life, if I were to die tomorrow and I look back at my life, there were moments when I, I cheated. I cheated on, on tests. I broke into, I broke into a school. I stole. Like, have you talked about this on the pod, by the way? Nope. No one's asked me. I was also valedictorian and I was like a really response. I was part of the National Honor Society and, and yearbook editor. Uh, But there was also that alter ego side of me where I was like, I knew if I could be a really good tennis player, a really good student, I could also just like work hard, but also party hard. And I need to release some of that energy Um, and not to make this story about myself, but I think in just like, if I'm applying my journey, my psychological journey, if you will, like there are a number of stories that I, that come to the surface, you know, Kobe Bryant talked about the anger and rage that he felt during his childhood, primarily stemming from not only moving to Italy, but he eventually loved growing up there, but then moving away from moving Italy back. and getting yeah. dropped in the middle of the United States away from his friends. And he was 13 years old. And back then, you know, a lot of people think like, oh, Kobe was a star since he was 13. No, he came back. He was like skinny. The weird Italian, the weird black Italian kid. <laughs> right. Yeah. He said he was skinny and scrawny. And he was that kid with knee problems and knee pads and like high white tube socks and you know and he had he learned how to play the game because he he had to prove himself um and he couldn't compete with some of these other kids that he used to say had beards he's like what am i going to do with that like i can't i can't roll with that um but he he took that rage and that anger and that frustration and all those pent-up feelings that he experienced through his childhood and put them into basketball but sometimes like they might that some of that energy because you don't know how to process them at the same time, they will manifest itself in some capacity. So you know maybe a Tiger Woods like maybe that contributed to some of his infidelities and and that whole you know sexual rant. Um, I mean there's there's a number of stories. I mean I looking back at my journey, I had no idea first like no one ever ta- taught me about emotions. Like as an athlete, you're meant to be robotic. So like if you're feeling emotion, you need to just shut it off and stop it. 
You know what I mean? So it's like, if I have those emotions at like 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, like what am I supposed to do with that? So for me, getting that adrenaline rush and sneaking out, which I was known for like sneaking out, I would jump over the balcony and go out to clubs, come back at 4 a.m., get up at 7, go to school and then practice for five hours. Like I could, I could roll like that. But that was just my way of getting all that energy out. Right. So, and that's, and like to me, that's, that's the, like the less, the what you learn about yourself mm-hmm. going through that, but also exiting that, growing out of that stage. Like that's part of the, that's part of when, like you said, when we're doing the prim eulogy, <laughs> like that's, I mean, we may not actually say it in the actual eulogy. But the, the, the story of Prim, if you will, like the movie, like think about if your yeah. life was a movie, a biopic, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're going to gloss over that whole, we're just going to skip that part, right? Like, no, we have to talk about it, right? Yeah. In the same way that like if you watch Ray, it's all about him being addicted to heroin. Mm-hmm. That was a part of, that was a part of, like that's part of the Ray Charles story. And to ignore it would not only be disingenuous, but also would, ignore something that was a defining moment for this person. Mm-hmm. And so I think like, like, I don't, I, I guess I'm not uncomfortable talking about it so long as you talk about it with respect and, and with context. Yep. Agreed. You yeah. know, cause there's, there's some people who are just out there to tell, Oh, you right the girl. They're like, no, that's not what happened. Right. And also that's not, does not deliver the nuance of the situation. And what it means in the, we're not just naming bad shit that he did. It's something that, it, you know, is part of the greater overall story. It's into the fabric of who, who, who he was. Yeah. I mean, even in his, I, th- I think it was his 2012 documentary. He actually talked about it. Right. And he addressed it. You know, he talked about that 2003 incident. And by the way, back then he was 25. That's by no means excusing what he did, but... 25 is young. We all do a lot of stupid things. And also, this is the psychological side of it. And me, you know, thinking about like how it relates to his journey as an athlete. But it ironically happened the day before he was supposed to have knee surgery. That's why he was out in Colorado. And so, like, I I think about like what I did when sport wasn't a part of my life. And that's when something always went wrong. I mean, that's when things, when I retired, that's when things really went wrong. Um, and again, that's not to excuse by any means like his behavior. And that's not to, that doesn't mean that our conversation right now or what I'm saying is, um, dismissing anything about what that girl said or felt or any of that. It's just understanding his journey and how that played a, with him, this may not be with everybody else, but he learned from that. He talks about like how he blamed himself for the miscarriage that his wife eventually had. It was about a year and a half to two years later because he said that she was so stressed out from the whole Denver incident. And it made him realize that he was being stupid and um, disrespectful and he wasn't taking care of his family. And, you know, so when I spoke with him at the U.S. Open, he hopped on our set and he was – he was doing a little uh, media junket tour to promote his new book, Legacy and the Queen. And 
me being a parent and knowing how much I've changed in just the 17 months, I knew the question to ask was, did you know, or the questions was, did you ever think you were going to do this? And would the pre-kid Kobe have ever done this? He was like, of course not. No. Like I thought I was going to play basketball for the rest of my life. And like, there's no way I would ever be doing this, you know? Um, And he kind of actually like backed up what Elle had mentioned too. He's like, yeah, I would have another girl. I would have a fifth girl. And he said the same thing. I mean, you know, people change, man. Like things happen. Uh, Tracy McGrady told a story that when, you know, obviously him and Kobe, he's probably one of the few people I would say was actually a a close friend to Kobe. There aren't too many of those people running around. Mm -hmm. Um, Even like a lot of the stories that were told, you know, afterward and all the people, a lot of them, uh, my buddy Andrew Schultz, uh, who's who's a pretty uh, funny comedian, he said to me, it's weird because I noticed all the stories all seem to be centered around, and then he went and worked out, or and he just came back from a workout. Mm-hmm. It's very, it's like someone says, oh, uh, I'm really good friends with so-and-so, and all your stories of that person are from work. Like, oh, we were in the break room, and he said this. Oh, I didn't know that one time in the conference. I'm like, you never have any experiences with them outside of the workplace. Mm-hmm. So how good of a friend are you really, right? Yeah. Tracy, Tracy's one of the few people who buy it. Because Tracy and Kobe had very similar experiences. They were teenagers in the NBA at a time when that wasn't a thing, right? They were only like the, the mm-hmm. fourth. I think at that time it was four guys who come straight out of high school to the pros. Uh, or maybe five. It was like Moses Malone, Daryl Dawg. You know, actually, it was, so it was, it was four active at the time, definitely. Because at the time it was like Kevin Garnett, Jermaine O'Neal, Tracy McGrady, Kobe Bryant, right? Mm-hmm. And basically, Tra- Tracy and Kobe were the only two guards in the history of basketball at the time to come straight from high school to the pros. Mm. And they're both on teams with a lot of veterans, like 29, 30, 31-year-old guys, right? Mm-hmm. And they're 18. So there's a whole lot of, like, camaraderie there because they knew they were probably the only two people in the world who knew what they were going through was each other. And so Tracy tells the story is how Kobe used to say he wanted to die young. Huh. Wow. Now, obviously, this is, these are the words of someone who's 20, 21, something like that, hasn't gotten married, hasn't got kids. Like, you change. There are things that you wow. say and think and believe that change as yeah. time goes by. Um, but, you know, it's, it's just, uh, I think it's all part of the journey. It's, it's all part of... of it's kind of who a we are. scary, self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, well, yeah, well, but 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 it's with again, like it, it with, with without context, you're like, oh my god, right? But then, like, right. oh yeah, but this is before you like became a father. Like you, yeah. you, you things the way, like you said, uh, like the story you just told, like, told about him, um, basically, like what what would would the pre kid Kobe be like this? Mm-hmm. Or to, no, because that was a different person. It really was. Right? I mean, don't you feel like a different person before kids? Yeah. It, and by the way, it happens the moment the, the moment the kid pops out. Right? <laughs> like <laughs> you might think, you might think like, okay, I'm having a kid. We're having a kid. Okay, my, my life's gonna change. 
And, but like the moment the kid and they hand you the kid to hold, you're like, like, oh, oh my god, my, everything, my whole life is meaningless now. Everything, like, it's you, it's yours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm gonna because I, I got to share my my lovely uh, dark side, <laughs> my awesome teenage years. I'm gonna pose the question to you, and I know. I've known you for a number of years now, and we go way back, and I know you like to keep a lot of your stuff private. However, this is a safe space, and it is the essence of the show. But could you remember a moment, a quote-unquote mistake or failure, if you will, that was really pivotal in your personal journey that you would like to share with yeah. us? I mean, yeah, I, I, think, I think dropping out of school was, was one of them mm. because – I was, I knew I didn't want to do it, like be an engineer. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And I was like young and living in Atlanta, which means like it was parties everywhere. We, we, you know, I had, trust me, I had a good time. I lived, right? How old um, were you? I was probably 19. Oh boy. 19 yeah. to 20, yeah. And and you know running around and, and and going to strip clubs and like like all the stuff that like I you know I like I had a fairly tame high school you know, life mm-hmm. went to a couple of parties here and there but like I didn't drink I didn't I didn't do I didn't smoke I didn't do anything it wasn't like I wasn't like a one of these people like Bible thumpers or whatever I just like ah that's not for me. But, like, I, I don't mind. Y'all can do whatever. I'm cool. Um, and then I started drinking in college. And and I don't think I have or had a drinking problem, but I definitely, like, got it in. And I wasn't really about my schoolwork because I didn't, I, I didn't, in my heart of hearts, I didn't believe in it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of, like, was doing it. But I think if I had a, if I had a strong conversation with myself and a frank conversation, I was no man, you don't want to do this. And so, for me, all of that was kind of I was wayward, right? Mm-hmm. Now you talk about self-destructive behavior happening when life took away the thing that was most important to you, which was tennis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and same thing with Kobe when he had to have like basketball away because of knee surgery, self-destructive behavior happened. For me, imagine not knowing what that thing was. And so my whole life was just self-destructive behavior. Oh, mm-hmm. And then, and then, and then I got lucky and I, I started working in basketball and I was like, Oh, this is something people do. Because at the time, I didn't even know. I thought, like, you had to be the former player or your daddy owned the team or your daddy was a famous coach or something like that to be on the inside of this. I didn't realize in sports, by the way. I didn't forget, like, I didn't even understand, like, the difference between the marketing department, community relations, basketball operations. Like, I didn't, I didn't know. Mm-hmm. thought it was just, like, five people running an entire team or whatever. <laughs> so, like, working part-time for the Hawks introduced me to this world of people who had sports management degrees. I didn't know that was a degree. I didn't know you go to school for this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and all those things. And that's when I was like, I was like, this is what I want to do. And so I transferred. I went to Arizona State. 
and I went from like a terrible whatever my GPA was, it wasn't good, to like graduating uh, summa cum laude. Oh, because because it was like because then I knew it was like oh, boom, 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 boom. it was it was but it's everything was goal oriented after that. Yeah, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do this. And I gotta get this out of the way. Blah blah blah. blah. So like mowing through these classes. And part of it is Arizona State, even though I was in the business school, which is at the time it was a top 25 school in the country, mm-hmm. um, it's still not Georgia Tech engineering. Like that shit is, there's some part of it, like, look, this shit is just a lot easier than the other shows. But there's another part of it was I was motivated. Yeah. I knew what I wanted and I, I like, I went out to go get it. And so it's, I mean, but for me, the darkest time was just, not knowing what I was going to do. And even when I kind of started figuring out what I wanted to do, I didn't know how to go about doing it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's not, it's, it's funny because it's not, that conversation comes up. That's like, oh, that's honestly, that's like the theme of this show as it relates to athletes, because athletes feel very lost once they don't have sport because they don't know what their purpose is in life, but that's applicable right. to everybody, right? When you don't know what your purpose is in life, you're going around in circles and research. If, if we're talking talking about from a scientific perspective, like there's actual research to show that purpose in life is one of the top determining factors in terms of happiness and and just overall well being. So if somebody right. doesn't know what their life purpose is, meaning something that is bigger not than not just you or your family, but but your purpose in serving this universe in this world, like how you can change the community in this world. And when you don't know what that is, like people, people not only feel lost, but it's not a good, it's, it's a, it can throw you for a tailspin. Right. Absolutely. Well, that was a good story. I didn't know that about you. I appreciate you sharing that. I've I've lived before we close. um, Is there anything, cause you've been, you've been a part of so many Kobe conversations um, but is there anything that you could just shed a little bit more light on about how we should remember Kobe or how he was important to you, or maybe just like a different take that, that we all aren't seeing with regards to Kobe and the legacy that he left? I think people can be transformational without being the best, right? I think there's a lot of people saying like, oh, see how how many people have come out and said this, that, and the other, and how, look how he changed the world. Like, surely this makes him, puts him in the conversation of best basketball player along with, like, Michael Jordan, LeBron, and whoever else you have up there. And, like, my thing is, like, no, because it's not always about your technical excellence. Sometimes you're just able to reach people because you have a story that is relatable because you express yourself in, in a way that, attracts people you know I, I i purposely didn't talk much about where he stands in basketball history like sports talk radio loves to do is just ranking people okay where is he at? because you know obviously emotions are raw but the reality is he, he his influence on generations of basketball player both in the nba and all over the world like that doesn't necessarily have to run hand in hand with how good he actually was. Um, and, and, and it's a conversation that I enjoy having in a calm, reasoned way, not with people who are like emotional and, you know, 
uh, you know, the idolatry. Because there's another conversation to be had at some point about how this dude, like, effectively monetized and uh, sy- systemized hero worship. Like, there was, he, he built a whole industry around it. Oh, that drives me nuts. Very right. successfully, I might add, in a way that uh, maybe only Michael Jordan has. I, I don't. I don't think LeBron has mastered it. I definitely, no Tiger Woods didn't master it. Kobe simultaneously made people feel close while, in actuality, keeping them as far away as possible. I think that's really fascinating. But also understand, like that's a conversation that's probably it's a little too soon now. That conversation right now. Amin is right in that timing is everything, and I don't know if my timing is right. As I said in my introductory episode. It is my belief in the whole premise of this show that if we are to really understand someone wholly, we must know and hear and understand their entire story. And when looking at anyone's journey, including my own, we have to look at all of it, not just a portion of it. The beauty in life doesn't lie in just our triumphs and successes. Most of it lies in how we come back from our greatest failures and mistakes. It's the redemption and the evolution that's beautiful. Dr. Parham talked about how Kobe embraced every single challenge he faced, even the ugly ones. And Mark talked about that unparalleled work ethic he applied to all that he did. I just want to say a big warm thank you to all my guests today, Mark Spears, Dr. William Parham, Amin Hassan, for opening up and sharing their stories and engaging in some really difficult subjects. I'd also like to send a big thank you to the USTA and US Open for allowing us to air that Kobe interview. And a big thank you to you, the listener, for making it all the way to the end of this very long episode. Also, engaging in some really deep, tough, complicated, sticky topics and being able to engage in this discussion in a compassionate way. Thanks for listening to the next chapter. I'm Prim Sarif Pat. Until next week. Coaching your daughter's I team. Am. I am. They're doing well, though. I mean, they've been playing for like a year and a half. Year What's their record? Uh, they don't have seasons. It's crazy. They just have tournaments like every weekend. I see. And uh, if they don't win the tournaments, do you like, do they have to sleep in the yard or anything like that? Or? <laughs> no food for a week. <laughs> yeah, because if anyone, if that anyone would think like that, yeah. I would think it would be the mom of their talent. but you do it anyway. 
That is actually the dream. That's the dream. It's not the destination. It's the journey. If you guys, if you guys can understand that, then what you'll see happen is that you won't accomplish your dreams. Your dreams won't come true. Um, something greater will. And uh, if you guys can understand that, then I'm doing my job as a father. Thank you guys so much. I love you. And, uh, Mamba out.